You're listening to The Raw Podcast, where we make sense of the madness and mayhem that is the world of sports. This is our debut episode, so thank you so much for joining us. We're hoping it's going to be a bit more like a sublime Michael Clark 151 rather than a nightmare-inducing Bryce McGain. None for 149, guys. I'm Reardon Lee. I'm Daniel Jeffrey, And I'm Ben Conkin. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Each week we're going to be delving into an issue that always seems to be popping up in sports headlines around the world. This week, we're going to be breaking down the ever-increasing impact money has on sport. We'll start off by getting the help of Raw expert Ryan Buckland to have a look at player wages and ask whether they're ever going to stop rising before getting into the slightly confusing and occasionally murky world of salary caps. We'll then finish off by arguing whether all this money has been any good for sport, and we're pretty excited to hear the thoughts of a few roarers on that front. Yeah, so for many of us, professional sport is really the only type of elite sport we've ever known, but it hasn't always been this way, and if you guys will just indulge me for a little bit, I want to briefly take us on a journey through space and time, all the way back to late 19th century in America, when amateur sport was considered the pinnacle of success. I think that's going to take more than just a little bit. <laughs> I lied. Uh, when I was researching this, I stumbled upon an article that um, Theodore Roosevelt, as in the president, wrote in August 1890 edition of the North American Review. And I won't read the whole thing, and we'll put it up on the episode article on the site, uh, but I found it to be really fascinating. Because back then, professional sport was far from mainstream. It was really an immoral, a debasing indulgence that was sneered at by the higher classes and really nothing to be celebrated by the masses. And so with real disdain, Roosevelt describes the emerging fetish, that was his words, uh, not mine, of professional sports, and the idea that someone would only dedicate their lives to sport was, it was like gross and unseemly. It was thought of like as a bastardized form of competition, it was corrupt, and really only amateur sport was considered the true and most pure form of sport. And so, given the enormous pedestal that we put professional sports and sports people on now, I found that really kind of quite jarring and confronting, really, to see it described in these terms. Um, But I think it's a really interesting jumping-off point uh, before we sort of get stuck into all the meaty issues. Yeah, I mean, it is quite fascinating to see how much sport has changed since then. And a lot of it has actually happened quite recently. I mean, even if we go back 25 or so years, um, a sport like rugby union was still actually amateur. We had guys like David Campisi running around, you know, undoubtedly one of the best players in the world, technically an amateur (laughs) and uh, even before that you look back at guys like Rod Laver unbelievably he was shunned for becoming a professional athlete and just think about that in this day and age with Nick Kyrgios, Bernard Tomic all the talk that they wouldn't even play sport if it wasn't for money so we've come a long way in that time yeah it's insane to sort of think that amateur sport was like the true pinnacle whereas now you know we think of our park sport that we all play um, you know taken Seriously, but not definitely not too seriously, and certainly I wouldn't consider it the pinnacle of, of anything, really. No, any sport where guys are having a few beers on the sideline isn't going to be the pinnacle, <laughs> unless you're David Byrne. Of <laughs> no, of course not. But the one thing that hasn't changed is that Aussies love their sport. In fact, Australian sports sector accounts for 2% of the nation's GDP, remarkably. Yet we're also about a fair go in this country. And it's no surprise that the Australian pay dispute, the public actually veered towards the Cricket Australia instead of the players, which I found rather interesting. In recent times, player salaries have constantly been rising. We've seen recent collective bargaining agreements in cricket, AFL, and there's negotiations in the NRL. 
The average AFL salary will rise from 309000 to 371000 and will go up to 389000 by 2022. So all those AFL players are going to be rich players by, by that stage. Uh, but in Spain, I just wanted to go through this. Guess how much the weekly salary is for a Real Madrid player, guys? Weekly salary. Uh, I'm so I'm gonna look like an idiot. Uh, fifty thousand bucks. Be closer to a hundred, surely. Well, it's actually one hundred and fifty US a that's week. That's a lot of money. So the, that's just the average. That's not can almost buy top. a Lamborghini for that every single week. They probably do. But also in the NBA, there's a stat going around that in Kobe Bryant's final season. Each basket he scored was equated to a teacher's salary, annual salary, that is. Imagine if he shot accurately. (laughs) (laughs) So we're facing a period of massive oversupply and disruption. Soon you'll not only be able to stream any professional sport you want, but fans' time and attention will also be stretched across a glut of semi-professional and amateur sport that is simple and accessible. Recently... ESPN lost 12 million subscribers in America and Channel 9 in Australia is considering spending less on cricket after losing an estimated $30 million in one season. The likes of Twitter, Facebook, Amazon have all entered the market. Amazon buying the NFL rights and also you've got YouTube and uh, Optus as well. Raw expert and economist Ryan Buckland, are traditional broadcast deals even important anymore? Well, it would appear from what's happening that it's the case of what's happening in the broader media now just happening to um, sporting leagues. So you've got an increase in the supply of content that's available, um, enabled by digital technology where uh, I guess the cost of distribution and dissemination is quite low. Um, And you're seeing an increasingly fragmented demand landscape as well. And so the days, I guess, of where you had the largest leagues commanding all of the eyeballs and therefore getting all of the the money, which we're still seeing play out in Australia to some degree, um, but we're certainly seeing less of it happen around the world, um, is perhaps not the way that things will happen going forward. What about the uh, AFL five-year deals? They always seem to have five-year deals with these TV rights. Do you see that changing to like even a one-year? It would be an interesting decision for the AFL to make. Um, I guess the, the thing about locking a broadcast deal in for five years is you've got that certainty to provide the rest of the industry. So it flows through to what the AFL could do from a game development perspective, what it could offer the players, uh, what they can do in terms of stadium and other investments that they may like to make. So um, the the league itself, or, or leagues themselves, if we talk in more general terms, would always have an incentive to try and lock in things for longer. Um, and that would be particularly the case if we're in an environment where... Uh, broadcasting deals are starting to look like they're peaking and are, are going to fall in the future. And how important are these deals for those player salaries that we mentioned before? Is it uh, the be-all and end-all? Oh, it's massive for, uh, for particularly domestic Australian leagues. So to give you a sense of the scale, um, in 2016, the AFL reportedly earned $260 million from just broadcasting uh, alone. That was more revenue than the league as an entity, so across broadcasting, ticket sales, merchandise, corporate sponsorship and the like, uh, earned in 2006. So in 10 years, it's just become such a massive part of what, uh, what the AFL brings in to its pot and then what, it, what's, what it's able to spend. Um, its new broadcast agreement is literally double the last one. 
Um, and so you would think that you know, they're, they're not going to see another doubling again uh, going forward and that they would need to start planning for an environment where I guess it's likely to, to stagnate or even potentially come down into the future. I, it's an interesting one here because we hear so much about um, how uh, broadcast traditional broadcasters, i.e. TV networks, they might not be spending all that much on, uh, on sport in the future in comparison to what they are now. Do you think we're going to see those broadcast deals start to go down, or, or are the players like the new players like Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, are they going to allow us to keep seeing player salaries go up? Yeah, it's, the, it's probably the critical medium-term financial issues facing all sports, um, not just Australian leagues, but but I think globally as well. So, um, like I was discussing a little bit earlier, it's an issue of supply and demand. Like most things are that, that I tend to talk about. Um, so uh, you've got this environment where the supply of sporting product is growing at an exponential rate. You, talk, you, know, you were talking just before about amateur leagues and um, semi-professional leagues, and you can even go into things like niche sports, you know, handball or um, water polo or other, other sports that haven't traditionally had a very large um, audience because they've not been the mainstream sport, now have a, a direct path to market. Um, and so what that means is you just have a, a far more fragmented structure, um, money going in a lot of other different directions than traditionally was, was the case. And the impact on, of that um, would be that the, the financial health that we've seen many of the major Australian sporting leagues in particular um, command over the past 5, 10, 15 years um, won't be as assured as it was uh, even just a couple of years ago. Just on that oversupply topic, realistically, how much can domestic sport in Australia grow? And is that why you know leagues like the AFL have gone to China? And is that really important for, for domestic leagues to try and uh, expand globally? Yeah, it's, it's really an issue of incremental growth. So there's a lot of ways that clubs or leagues or teams can do that. Um, it's why leagues are always looking for opportunities to expand their reach uh, particularly into markets where they don't currently exist. So uh, the NRL looking into Perth, for example, putting a team over here um, as opposed to putting another team into New South Wales or Queensland makes a lot of sense for them because there's 2.3 million people uh, in Western Australia that are potentially there that, that aren't there uh, on the East Coast. Uh, expanding professional women's leagues has a very similar objective. It's tapping into a completely new market opportunity um, with a, a hope that you can grow the overall size of the pie uh, for the particular league or the particular sport. Uh, going international does appear to be a global trend. So the NFL played a regular season game in London 10 years ago um, as a bit of an experiment. This year they're playing four uh, regular season games over there. They also play one in Mexico, so uh, certainly looking at international expansion there. The NBA is looking into China. Most leagues with the financial capacity to look internationally doing so. Uh, the AFL has made a play in China as well um, and had a, a dip at New Zealand for a couple of years but looks to have pulled back from there. Uh, so, yeah, international, it's, a, it's an opportunity, but um, it, it brings with it its own risks and um, its own potential limitations, particularly when you're talking about a sport that's... Particularly when you're talking about Australian sports, which tend to be... Uh, a bit more niche in their appeal. Beyond 
broadcast deals and things like that, sport as a whole just seems to be getting more and more lucrative and more and more lucrative to the point where it's it's almost uh, it's quite absurd. Is that I hear economists like you guys talk about bubbles? Is there such thing as the sporting bubble? Can it keep growing, or is it eventually is it going to burst? Yeah, it comes down to the issue of oversupply, I guess. So it's it's really it's difficult to say. Um, in a broadcasting sense, um, it would appear not. Although we're talking, I guess, the, the difference between a traditional or terrestrial broadcaster versus, say, the more digital broadcasters. Um, most leagues in Australia now have access to free-to-air TV as part of their portfolio if that's what they want. So that would suggest um, we're not approaching a saturation point. Right. Um, there's always likely to be distribution issues, though. So um, it gets a bit of a, a technical topic, but I'll, I'll see what I can do with it there. <laughs> um, th- there's always going to be differences between which water are popular at which point in time and in which markets. So a good example of that would be within the cricket portfolio. Um, test cricket might not be as attractive financially as it once was uh, because of the change viewing habits of, of people. You know, people aren't sitting in front of their TV for eight, hour at a t- eight hours at a time. Uh, but the Big Bash League looks set to more than make up for that. So if you look at it from a cricket perspective, um, the size of their pie may continue to grow, even if the distribution of that pie changes a little bit. Right. Uh, now, of course, one of the issues really closely related to athlete wages is salary caps. Uh, essentially, they're a way to enforce or at least try to enforce an even playing field across an entire competition by limiting how much a team can spend on player salaries. Uh, it can be done a number of ways. Some competitions like the NFL and the NRL use a hard salary cap where spending over the cap is strictly prohibited. Other competitions like to use soft caps which is essentially a salary cap, which is possible to exceed through certain loopholes. Uh, The NBA is a really good example of this, where there are a number of exemptions, but teams have to pay anything from $1.50 to more than 4 bucks for every dollar they are over the soft cap. Uh, And then, of course, you have competitions like the English Premier League, where there are no caps and completely ridiculous play wages. I mean, we are talking about (laughs) La Liga earlier where the average Real Madrid player earns $150,000 a week. That's what happens when you have no salary cap. Um, Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Uh, They do tend to lead to premierships and championships being more spread out across leagues, and they also provide some kind of safeguard against unsustainable spending. Uh, But because they limit the amount players can earn, they can force Uh, athletes to leave certain comps or codes and some people claim they actually aren't that effective in enforcing a level playing field they also open us up to scandals like what we saw with the melbourne storm uh, perth glory a few years ago in the a-league and carlton in the afl as well so with all that in mind and out of the way guys do we like salary caps ryan i'll start with you um well to Contextualise it to Australia, I think they're just a fact of life because most sports are run not-for-profit. So they're, they're about mission, they're about expanding the reach of the competition um, for expanding the reach of the competition's sake, ultimately. So um, that means having an even and entertaining competition is the overarching objective. It's not just about, say, in the English Premier League or a number of the US leagues where there's a lot of private ownership. It's about making the most money, which can involve spending more on players in order to chase uh, chase a win in the last game of the year or a premiership or whatever the, the league-specific um, success looks like. So 
Um, the Australian context, I think it's it's just a matter of that's how it is. Um, but I'm a I'm a generally a believer in the market can can sort things out and salary caps can uh, distort things a little bit too much. I agree with you 100% with that. I mean, it is a reality that, that they have to have happen in Australia, but, geez, I don't know. I get pretty frustrated when, uh, you know, a team loses their star marquee player who's on a million dollars a year, and then they've got the rest of the salary cap, which is not much after that, with the rest of the players uh, to to get through the season. I like mm. salary. Oh, sorry. I, I really like them because I'm a bit of a sucker for for more the drama and the narrative of sport than actual like the pure skill and the competition. So this season of AFL has been my favourite because even though the quality's like hasn't been anywhere near as good as, you know, the Hawthorne days or anything like that, it's been so close and so tight and so many unexpected twists and turns. That's what I really like um, when I watch sports. So for me, yeah, I prefer that really tight and messy drama of salary caps. I mean, I was a fan of the, the the history and 11 premierships straight of uh, St. George back in the day. And I think that was something to... That <laughs> other teams the were trying to beat them. Um, and there's no salary cap talk about that. It was just, you know, that there's the best team. Let's try and beat them. I like that. And I also love the Leicester story. Let's not forget about Leicester in the English Premier League. Uh, yes, it was a one-off, but it was amazing because they had no money compared to those big teams. And they did the unthinkable. Uh, and a- even any week, any given week, um, an English Premier League team on the bottom can beat a Manchester United, which is why the FA Cup is successful as well. But I mean, that that actually doesn't happen that often. If we're thinking no. about, I mean, you talk about Leicester City, it was a one-off. I mean, if we look at the history of the Premier League, so going back to 1992, we've had six champions ever. That's including mm. Leicester. So your likes of your Chelsea's, your Manchester United's, your Arsenal's and Manchester cities, they dominate these sports. I, I'm with Ridden on this one. I love seeing it seeing it spread out across... I, I love seeing championships spread out across different teams. I, I don't like teams like... You, you talk about St. George. Um, the Boston Celtics are another really good example where they won a stack of championships in a row, and I think it's so much better for sport in general to see these spread out. Um of course, what the best way to do this is, is up for debate. We talked a little bit about soft caps and hard caps and... No, no caps. Ca- no caps. <laughs> right. No, it's caps. What do you views if we have to have a salary cap, what, what do you think the best way to go about it is? Is a hard cap the way a la the NRL or is a soft cap uh, what sporting codes should be implementing? Yeah, I really like the idea of... Well, conceptually, I really like soft caps um, just because they allow the clubs within a league more flexibility to manage their teams year to year. Um, The drawback is really that they're quite complicated to implement, Um, and particularly in the Australian complex where we've got this um, very old-school view about player salary transparency, it would be pretty much impossible to actually implement a a soft player salary cap because you just have no way of informing the public of what's actually going on. Um, They do seem to work quite well in the NBA, a soft cap, um, because teams are able to have those short-term runs above the cap to keep their team together to make a title run, which in the NBA delivers them a lot more revenue. So we get back to this not-for-profit versus for-profit or profit motive as well. Uh, but obviously doing so for a really long time um, can cost a team's owners a bucket load of money. So there's, there's definitely 
benefits to it there, but I think it just comes back to, again, in the Australian context, um, we've got a, a lot of other issues to sort through before we start talking about getting really sophisticated on these measures. Are those instances, those discretions by, you know, Melbourne Storm Carlton in Australia, is, are they a reflection of salary hard caps being unenforceable or are these just, you know, people occasionally beating the system? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just some, you, you get some rogue elements appear at a club and um, think we'll, we'll have a crack and um, sometimes they get caught, sometimes they don't. Um, I guess you've seen an instance in the AFL more recently with um, Kurt Tippett at the Adelaide Crows where um, he had a, a bit of a side deal where he was getting some money outside of the salary cap, also had a couple of clauses inserted to his contract that gave him an out um, in a way that was anti-competitive so that the Adelaide Crows would have to accept the deal that was put in front of them if it was a second-round pick uh, or something like that, which is obviously below what Kurt Tippett was worth uh, in 2012 when this was all transpiring. So um, I think you just it's just a fact of life that you're always going to have some rogue elements within a sporting league uh, looking to push the envelope or indeed rip the envelope up altogether and, um, and do things the way that they want to do it. I wish we had a give back clause and then we could, Sydney Swans could give back. Alas, it's not in the contract. I mean, so, I mean, we've kind of made the judgment that salary caps, they're here in Australia, they're here to stay. Do you think they should be, though? I mean, the A-League is a really interesting example on this front in that it's a sport where salary caps are almost non-existent across the globe. I mean, the A-League and the MFL, uh, major League Soccer in the United States are pretty much the only major football competitions in the world that have salary caps. Do you think sport uh, codes like the A-League, uh, Super Rugby as well, do you think they should be looking at getting rid of salary caps? The only issue I think would be, and I actually have the A-League example written in my notes here, um, that you've got a club like um, Melbourne City who are owned by the the umbrella group that owns um, Manchester City and, and all of those clubs. Um, what if there was no salary cap? What would be stopping them from just spending thirty or forty or fifty million dollars on players in a league where the salary cap they could they could spend the entire salary cap of the A League on their, their single team and bring as many of the best players together as they could and just absolutely dominate. Um, now there's a an argument there that maybe that's you know it's it's just the market sorting things out, but um, until I think you get this ownership structure issue right, it's, it's just not a feasible thing to say salary caps can't work in the Australian context. It's a fair point, that one. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you look at the, the money that Manchester City have dished out on players and it would certainly ruin the competitive nature of the A-League for quite some time. But, I mean, on the flip side, you have Socceroos coach and Chapostakoglu earlier in the year said if there was one thing he could change with the A-League, he'd get rid of the salary caps to keep young players uh, in Australia, yeah. So it, yeah. it is hard trying to find that that balance between the two. It seems to be a uniquely Australian problem. Across, you know, they see it in the science and technology field as well. They talk about brain drain a lot. We're just not able to give people that the money that they can get overseas, and that seems to be the, the case in Australia as well. And yes, you can't always have your cake and eat it. Really, it's either. It's also hard for the competition alone because the big draw card is having those marquee guys uh, had mm. Del Piero we want to get those players that are on the verge of retirement coming out for one last shot in Australia 
guys like Steven Gerrard, obviously David Beck, and they both played in America. And um, to get those guys is what the next step is, and it's really hard to do that with a salary cap. Mm. Ryan, I think we'll wrap things up there on salary caps, and uh, you can catch more of Ryan's outstanding stuff on theraw.com.au. All right, so we've been at this for a while, guys. And so I guess that what it all really comes down to is just one simple question, uh, which is, has money made sport better? And we've thrown this question out to the raw community and had some really great answers that we'll get to really soon. Uh, but for now, let's just start um, with the actual on-field product. Has pumping all of this money into sport led to a better you know, product on the field, for want of a better word? Because it's not a side gig for for sportsmen anymore like you said before Jeffers like Nick Fire Jones and the rugby union players it was their it was a side job for them um, but now it's a seven day a week job they have everything monitored there's so much data out there for coaches um, and yet there's a plenty of a fairly good argument to say that the game has either you know hasn't gotten better has changed significantly or some people would say it's gotten worse people who think sport has got worse since the 1970s or whatever are they're wrong they're just this whole kind of nostalgia argument that oh sport was way better back in my no it wasn't like no one back from the 1970s could do what LeBron James does now on a basketball field no one back in the 1950s 60s 70s could do what half of our professional athletes can do today because they have so much time they because they're funded they have so much time to dedicate themselves to their craft and from from a pure athletic perspective that has made sports so much better do you think that's though that that pure athleticism of the 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 super athlete now does that has that led to a better game a better gameplay or has it you know there's Especially with AFL, there's the problem of they're almost too fit. The the games are too fast, and we're having to you know do everything we can to slow it down. Yes and no. I mean, it's a really good point. Um, And some sports have perhaps got over formulaic as a result of all the extra time that coaches can spend. um, You know, finding out what the perfect formula is for winning footy games i think the nrl is a really good example of this where it doesn't seem to as be it seemed to be as free-flowing these days as it once was um but by the same token we're still seeing these incredible athletic feats i mean look at the nrl again using it as an example uh wingers finishing in the corner like the athleticism and skill acrobatics that yeah the acrobatics those guys have to somehow plant the ball down in the corner while they've got three guys tackling them is unforeseen we haven't seen anything like it with the exception of the past five ten years it's a funny just looking at the whole how, how attitudes have changed um when i was researching this i've stumbled upon an an article uh, interviewing the 1995 winning Carlton Premiership team and they were talking about how they used to train and they said they trained twice a week um, and the three unspoken rules of training were never set a time you cannot beat, never pass up an opportunity to cut corners and never push yourself to the point of exhaustion. (laughs) And these are the guys that won the flag. Um, So it's certainly been a big shift in attitude. But one thing that hasn't changed, especially in AFL, and there's an argument really for, for rugby union as well, I guess especially looking at the current Wallabies team, is that Things like fundamentals, set shots at goal haven't improved no matter how much money we've put into it. They've, um, I think they've marginally gotten worse if you look at conversion rates over time. Things, basic rugby skills, decision-making, 
Do you think that has has really dramatically improved Conks? Yeah, you're 100 percent on the money with that. I think the um, the basics. You look at Don Bradman, for example, with the stump and the golf ball. Has anyone yeah. been able to do that since? And <laughs> every every kid's tried to, but the way he did it for like 10 times in a row, and he batted on uncovered pitches. I didn't try, <laughs> just for the record. I also didn't Why play not? test cricket for Australia, so that may have something to do. With what about loyalty, guys? Obviously, one club players are almost a relic of the past. Um, does that affect your experience of the game as a fan? It frustrates me a lot. The contracts don't mean much these days. It's all about the money. You can sign a contract and then the next minute it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave clubs. Um, that really frustrates me. I think that's the worst thing about money in sport. It does sort of annoy me as well because it shatters that illusion of sport of sport fandom for me a bit because, you know, you invest yourself in this club for some reason and sometimes the only reason is just because you like the players and then the players bugger off and you're left like, oh, why do I actually... Why do I support these guys? Why do I, like, cry when they lose? Um, if, you know, their only loyalty to to the club and is because they pay them. I doubt there would be as many code hoppers as we see now back in like 20 years ago because they, they're hopping codes, yes, because they want to try a different sport. But let's face it, the money is one of the key factors as well. This is where I really want to bring in um, the roar of the crowd because we did have some really great responses, especially talking about the experiences for the fan following sport and the impact that money's had on that. Because now, you know, there's sport everywhere. It's 24-7. It's, it's on your phones. It's on your tablets, on your computers, in the paper. It's everywhere all the time. There's constant media coverage. Um, but there seems to be this... Um, people are upset that there's a growing disconnect between fans and sports players and their clubs. Um, Sheik wrote... Once broadcasters were happy to pay for the privilege of showing games live on TV, now they dictate to us and demand we even pay for the privilege. We encourage them. An entire new industry of attendant management has been created. How much of the money being ripped out of the sports consumer goes to the sport or the players and how much goes to the, pleth- the plethora of management? Any? Well, <laughs> that's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I... I mean, he makes a point there, though, like, we allow it. We pay for that stuff. I mean, and ultimately, when there is a demand from fans and consumers, if you're putting it in cut-and-dry economic terms, as long as there's a demand there, you know, broadcasters have every right to act as they are at the moment. Um, So a couple more comments coming in. Uh, Machuka wrote, For mine, sport has become a product with its participants being mere cogs, and like most products one buys, those moving parts have a certain lifespan. When they're worn out, they get replaced. Fair enough, but it's the replacement costs that are now becoming ridiculous. And as as we all know, those costs are always passed on to the consumer. Hence, the cost now for a Joe Blow family to attend games or to get access to the very best on TV is now becoming too great or is already too great. Uh, Wayne, on the other hand, Wayne was a bit more optimistic about the influence of money in sport. He said, It's been good at the semi-professional level as it's enabled players to play a sport at a decent grade, train multiple times a week, and only need a part-time job to top off expenses. The other side of the spectrum where multi-millions are being thrown around like confetti at the footy in the 70s. That has gone too far. Where everything's become a business transaction with KPIs, not just the best of the best athletes playing sport. Somewhere in the middle would be the ideal. That's I, I kind of feel like in the Australian sporting environment, we've hit that nice balance of money in sport where it's not that absurd level that it is, especially in Europe, especially in America. And I still feel there's that level of community engagement and, and connection between fans. I think there still is a bit of a disconnect or at least a growing disconnect at the moment. I mean, 
I think a good example of this, and this has been harped on, was harped on about during the finals a lot, um, but NRL crowds. Mm. I mean, it was really quite quite sad to see that the low crowds that we had in the first week of the NRL finals in 2017 is really, you know, just wasn't good enough to to be blunt. And I I think that is representative of something of a divide between fans and their sport, but it's also a product of the changing nature of sport. You know, we harped on about broadcast deals for a while at the start of the show, and that that is what makes or breaks a sport. So, you know, bigger TV audiences, in some cases, it's going to lead to uh, fewer fans at the games, which, you know, certainly seems like a bit more of a disconnect between fans and the game. I think it's time we call it there to everyone who tuned in thank you so much for listening and if you want to have your say on sport in australia and around the world be sure to head over to the raw.com.au where you can submit your own sports opinion article and get involved in the debate be sure to tune in next time for episode two when we discuss what makes a sporting competition successful until then it's bye for now mm-hmm.